the guru isn't just something outside that we're in relationship with. It's everything. It's the whole universe. And it's it's the practitioner. It's you. It's me. That it's not something that is there only when we're feeling holy and sacred. It's it's so so suppose you're saying a mantra, you're saying Ram 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 from the standpoint of Tantra, each time you say Ram, it is Ram. Each time you look in the mirror, it is Ram. Each time you look at your partner or your, your child or your neighbor, it is Ram. It is the mother. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Aurora Leonard. I'm the Associate Director of the Living Dying Project. And I wanted to tell you about an upcoming two-day online CEU training workshop that Ramdev Del Borglum is leading on March 23rd and 24th. So it's coming up. Every year between January and March, Dale facilitates his signature Healing at the Edge training workshop for anyone interested in conscious living and in working with the dying. And particularly if you're a licensed psychologist, therapist, social worker, nurse, or acupuncturist, you would have the ability to receive 15 California state-approved continuing education units. If you're a psychologist, you can also receive APA-approved credits. And if you're a social worker, you would also receive NASW credits. And if you don't need any CEUs or you don't know what I'm talking about, you are still able to register for this wonderful workshop. Dale will be teaching his healing paradigm, exercises and practices that you can use in your daily life. And just as a side note here, when I received his specific Tonglen teaching, and I actually did it for several days and weeks. It completely transformed what I thought compassion was. And I had an actual embodied experience, which was totally life-changing for me. And I think if you take this workshop and you actually utilize some of these practices, you'll receive some really wonderful insights and benefits from them. He will also teach practices for when you're with someone who is dying. And there's just such invaluable insight and what he teaches in this workshop and what it's actually like when you're there with someone who is transitioning and what really matters in those sacred moments. So please head over to www.livingdying.org and you will see a banner for the Healing at the Edge Conscious Living, Conscious Dying training workshop. It's right there on the main webpage. Click on that and you'll have the ability to read all of the information and feel free to email us with any questions. Our email is info at livingdying.org, or you can call us directly. And actually, I will be the one picking up the phone, and we can chat more about it. Our number is 415-456-3915. Much love to you all, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. Today, I would like to talk about finding the object of your devotion. I've been thinking a lot about this topic this week. And it really seems to me in a very deep and direct way that without devotion, the spiritual path that we're exploring 
individually and together is a path that's lonely and much more difficult without devotion. It's a little tricky to talk about because this isn't a group that where everybody's devoted to Jesus or everybody's devoted to Maharaji or everybody's devoted to Hanuman. Certainly there are people that are Buddhists or who are agnostic even. So I'm going to try to keep the language eclectic in general. It's, it's slightly tongue-tying at times, but let's give it a go. Without devotion, you're really never going to feel an intimacy between yourself and the teaching uh, or between yourself and the teacher. Guru Padmasambhava, the Indian saint who brought Buddhism to Tibet, said the power of the, he explained the power of devotion by saying that if your devotion is characterized by confidence, then realization will arise instantly within you. Imagine that if your devotion is characterized by confidence, he's saying you will instantaneously be realized. There's a great saint, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, the Bidiwala, very popular saint who died, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago. And somebody asked him how he got enlightened. He said, well, I met my guru and he said I was enlightened and I believed him. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the that was the easy path. Ramana Maharshi, another very great saint, said, God, Guru, and self are one. And that is basically the core of what we're going to be talking about today. God, Guru, and self are one. And that's self with a capital S. So that the Guru is at one level, this person, man, woman out there in the world who talks and gives teachings and blesses people and does things like that. But at another level, the guru is none other than reality, is none other than truth. Ramana Maharshi said, God, guru, and self are one. The inner guru is the self in the innermost heart and pulls the devotee's heart back into its source. When we think we are the body, we then often think that the guru has a body. The outer guru pushes the mind to turn inward, and the inner guru pulls back toward the source. This is guru's grace. Meditation is meant to remove the ignorant idea that the guru is only outside. The guru steadily abides in the self. Find the guru by intense meditation. The whole universe is the form of the guru. See the guru in all beings. The guru does not bring about self-realization, but only removes obstacles to it. You are not the body, nor is the guru. You are the self, and so is the guru. This knowledge is gained by what you call self-realization. So. When we think of this notion guru, it's, it's often an esoteric idea, somebody in India or far away who has almost magical powers. But what Raman is saying here is that the guru is actually our true self. That 
it can be helpful at times to have an outer teacher to point this inward journey in a certain sense. But it could also be said that, that the guru is nothing other than pure awareness. And we can make pure awareness or unconditional love the center of our practice. Truth can be spelled with a small t. Truth can be spelled with a capital T. The guru is truth. God is truth. Devotion to awareness is the secret sauce. So the guru is a method. Devotion to the guru is a method. And it's really been my experience again and again that I need to be devoted to something more than I'm attached to my own suffering. People are attached to their own suffering. And to ask you or me to let go of our suffering, to just let it go and be free, is a very difficult ask. Because letting go of identification with suffering is becoming a different person. You and I often think, sometimes think, that we are this person who suffers. This is me. And to let go of that is ego death. And to die is confronting our fundamental core fear. So that can we find something we're devoted to? We're devoted to more strongly. We trust more deeply then we're attached to our suffering. And obviously that isn't going to be, for most of us, something that happens just like that. It's going to be something that's going back and forth. Sometimes there's more faith in the guru, in love, in awareness. Sometimes there's going to be attachment to suffering. But this letting go of attachment to suffering without devotion, devotion to something, Devotion to truth, devotion to awareness, devotion to God, devotion to Guru makes it so, so much easier. Devotion softens the fear of total surrender. I was thinking about how my relationship with the outer Guru has changed my current life and my practice. And I'm still neurotic. You can ask Natalie about that if you like. I still get a little grumpy at times. You can ask John about that. <laughs> but what I've really noticed is that there is this fundamental core trust that it's all okay. That even though there's these neurotic waves on top of the ocean, there is this deep, deep sense of trust. There's a feeling of connection. And that leads to a sense of fearlessness. Now, I'm not saying I don't get agitated, I don't get weird, but underneath that, there's a complete fearlessness that this is okay. So Maharaji said things like, everything is impermanent except the love of God. He said, tell me, what do you ask of God? What do you ask of God? Very interesting question. Maybe you ask to have deep devotion. He said, don't lose heart. Don't worry. Leave your worries. When people think of me, I am with them. I never allow one of my people to escape from me. So my practice is not perfect. 
And that's okay. I have these neurotic tendencies. They still arise. But underneath that is I believe those words. I believe what it is that he's saying. So that the more we work with that initial faith, that trust, that trust in devotion, it gives us a strong motivation for practice. Uh, being able to be aware of the emotional patterns that cause suffering. We often miss the forest for the trees. We're often so busy with this little problem and that little problem that we're not aware that this whole process is unfolding within the grace of the guru, within God's embrace, if you will. One can even just have faith in the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. The first noble truth is that there is suffering, there is unsatisfactoriness that's inherent in physical existence. That we want more, we want less, we get what we want, then it leaves. That there's this unsatisfactory quality as, as we, and that the second noble truth is that this suffering, this unsatisfactoriness is caused by attachments, caused by grasping. And the third noble truth is let go of grasping, no more suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path. Here's the way you do it. Right meditation, right concentration, right speech, right livelihood, etc. I don't remember all of them. I'm not a Buddhist. Okay. So I would suggest that in your life, you've noticed, you've been aware of how these noble truths actually are true. That when you let go of grasping, suffering is gone. When you grasp, suffering is there. Just that understanding, just knowing that in your bones is something one can be devoted to, that that can carry you through all of the choppy waters of spiritual practice. Maharaji also said, I am everybody's guru. Now, I'm sure there are people that feel jealous. Oh, Ramdev got to go to India with Ramdas and he hung out with Maharaji and Ananda and he had all these wonderful experiences. And yes, I did. And at the same time, I have a very deep sense that I needed to go there, that I was so stubborn that I needed to go to India and get hepatitis and malaria and dysentery and all those things. And that other people have just as deep, if not deeper relationships with the guru in the form of Maharaji or Christ or the mother or whoever it is. And they never had to leave their hometown. Although Trungpa Rinpoche did say that he thought it was impossible to get enlightened in California because the weather's too good. <laughs> he said, but that was before the fires. That was before the big traffic jam. It's like 30 years ago, he said, California is like a heaven realm. So there's not enough friction to get enlightened. I think if he came back now, he might change his opinion. Okay. Here's another quote by Trungpa. The very notion that you'll get something from the guru is one of the most difficult preconceptions to break through. 
Rather, the student must give something in return for the teachings. Some kind of psychological surrender is necessary, a gift of some sort. It is essential to surrender, to open yourself, to present whatever you are to the guru, rather than trying to present yourself as a worthwhile student. Your guru is the one with whom you can communicate directly and thoroughly. So that doesn't have to be somebody in a body. Uh, I spent very little time actually talking to Maharaji, sitting in front of him in India. The amount of conversations we had, I could write down on just a few sheets of paper. At the same time, I've been in constant or very frequent conversation with him on and on as the years go by. And our level of psychological integration often really determines how we approach God, what level of intimacy we can have. If we're still in, still having early childhood fixations, we'll treat the guru or God or the teaching or the teacher as a, a parent replacement, that we need something to tell us what to do. So that there is this intertwining of our psychological unfolding with a maturing of our relationship with our devotion. and. In a certain way, there's a very important interplay between devotion and self-compassion. We had a whole meeting about this a few months ago, that as we start going into a, a devotional surrender, it's going to uncover places where we're unable to do that. And then we judge your practice and we say, I'm not a good enough meditator. I'm not a good enough devotee. And without compassion for that place, those places, devotion gets blocked. So there's this interplay back and forth between devotion and compassion. That's, so we're going from conditioning to longing for love to love itself. Okay. So stages of devotion. The first stage of devotion, this invocation stage, on our healing paradigm. It's where we're not really feeling it yet. We're wanting, we're yearning. We felt it before, we've heard people talk about it, we've read about it, but at least in the moment, at least in this moment right now, you, I are not feeling that true connection. There's a sense of incompleteness, a sense of longing, a sense of wanting something that isn't there, but you believe it could be there. You can ask yourself, what do you have faith in? What are you willing to receive? What are you willing to be touched by? What are you willing to reach out for? So it takes some sense of humility plus confidence at the same time, that here is the practitioner. Here you are. Here we are. And we're not feeling connected. We're not feeling like a very good devotee in that moment. Can we have the confidence, the faith to reach out from that place? As you're saying the mantra, as you're saying the prayer, it's a reaching out for connectedness. It's saying, please, please show up, please show up. Uh, it's the same if it's not prayer or mantra, but it's 
uh, an awareness practice that you're sitting on your cushion, you're at a retreat, you're at home, you sit down and the mind is going all over the place. There's an agitated mind or there's a tired mind. There's a tired body. There's very little clarity. Can you still keep cultivating mindfulness? Can you still keep coming back again and again and again? Each time you notice you're lost in thought, in identification with separateness, can you come back to being present in the moment? Devotion brings energy and interest to practice. It, it softens, it enlivens the practice. There's some innate tenderness to each of our hearts. And when we're not feeling that, but we remember it, we've, we've seen it, we've felt it, we've, we've, we've heard it, can we remember that and keep coming back to this quality of surrender? Watering the seeds of our innate tenderness. And certainly, as we've talked about before, being grounded and centered, being embodied is a very strong support for this beginning stage of practice. Doing this with the mind is difficult. I'm saying bringing in devotion. How does devotion unfold in the body? How can you, how can you trust the body? How can you... Uh, de devotion is opening to that which we trust. That can happen through the heart, reaching out to the guru, to God. It can happen through the mind by cultivating mindfulness. It can happen in the body by trusting the message of the body, by dropping down into the, into the base, the first chakra, the second chakra, the third chakra, inhabiting the lower part of the body. And as we do that, as we do that more and more, the heart begins to open because we're seeing very clearly how suffering is arising, how suffering is being created. It goes back to that trusting the Four Noble Truths, that as we sit there, as we reach out, we notice how grasping is causing suffering. And we have this innate tenderness, this innate kindness, wholeness inside of us that we touch momentarily again and again. We, we begin to move toward that. And as we do that, the heart begins to open. And it's a very different kind of devotion then. There's a sense of peacefulness, a sense of connectedness, a sense of spaciousness, a warm heart, a connected heart, a spacious heart. Maharaji said, I am always in communion with you. Nityananda said, be peaceful. I am everywhere. Okay, so what would your practice be like if you believed that? This hard stage of devotion where no matter what the contents of your mind, no matter how neurotic you happen to be being in the moment, you're trusting that you are resting, you are supported, you are protected by the sense of presence. Protected doesn't mean you're not going to die. It doesn't mean your child's not going to get sick. It doesn't mean you're going to get a C minus in, in uh, trigonometry. Right? <laughs> but, but it means that you're protected, that it's all... Okay, Maharaj, said, let go of your worries. 
imagine if you had no anxiety, no worry that, yes, I'm separate. Yes, I've got this body that's getting a little funky sometimes, but I'm, I'm, I have the support. It's there all the time. What is it that makes it hard to do this? What makes it hard to do this is grief. We've opened up our hearts so many times and be, been disappointed. We've been hurt. We've been abandoned. We've been manipulated by others, by ourselves, and begin to have a softening relationship, a devotional relationship, even with the, the place of the pain that's been suppressed deep in the body. Can we begin to inhabit the body in a way that begins to allow the heart to open? One of my favorite Kabir poems. Oh, friend, I love you. Think this over carefully. If you are in love, then why are you asleep? If you have found him, give yourself to him, take him. Why do you lose track of him again and again? If you are about to fall into heavy sleep anyway, why waste time smoothing the bed and arranging the pillows? Kabir will tell you the truth. This is what love is like. Suppose you had to cut off your head and give it to someone else. What difference would that make? And this metaphor of cutting off your head is it's clearly a metaphor, or maybe it's beyond a metaphor and it's real. But at least it's this metaphor of no matter what the mind is doing, what difference does that make? We're whole. That story about Nisargadatta saying he got enlightened by believing his guru and his guru said, you are whole. And he believed him. And Maharaji says, I'm always in communion with you. Believing that, then who cares what's going on in the head? I mean, you've got to use the head, the mind. It's a great tool. It's a necessary tool. But it's not the master. The master is the guru, the self, our true nature. That's always there. And then we get to tantric devotion. Tantric devotion is a whole other level of being with the guru. That the guru isn't just something outside that we're in relationship with. It's everything. It's the whole universe. And it's, it's the practitioner. It's you. It's me. That it's not something that is there only when we're feeling holy and sacred. It's, it's, so, so suppose you're saying a mantra, you're saying Ram, 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 from the standpoint of Tantra, each time you say Ram, it is Ram. Each time you look in the mirror, it is Ram. Each time you look at your partner or your, your child or your neighbor, it is Ram. It is the mother. So now, the the notion, the relationship with the guru is completely changing. It's not me and this one thing out there, and we have this very juicy back and forth going on, and isn't this great, me and my beloved? It's everything. It's the war in the Middle East. It's Donald Trump might get elected. Some people are scrunching up their face on that one. <laughs> I won't mention any names. Okay. It's receiving grace in every moment. 
It's the difference between Tantra and yoga. In yoga, we're trying to control things. What goes into our mouth, what goes out of our mouth, how we're moving our bodies, how we're breathing, purifying ourselves, and waiting for grace. In Tantra, we're receiving the grace. We're ready to receive the grace. Each moment is grace. So that as each moment unfolds, can we be with it nakedly and directly, or do we have to conceptualize it? Do we have to think about it? Do we have to categorize it? Do we have to have a fixed point from which to perceive our experience? Or can we just be receiving the grace of each moment? In some way, tantric devotion is really about having a very deep relationship with the sacred feminine. You're going to connect with God in all form, all energy, all matter. It's all the mother. And then, of course, the, the guru is taking on all form. Maharaji, when asked, what is the best form to worship God? He said, every form. Ramakrishna said, our duty is to fall down in the door where others only bow. Can we adore even this, even this simple moment of us having this conversation about devotion? Does it get us lost in our heads as we're having this conversation? Or is it possible that this moment itself is an expression of that devotion? In tantric devotion, we merge with the deity. We become the deity. The deity becomes us. And we're basically exchanging our fixations with the content of our experience that cause suffering for more subtle fixations with the relative deity. So we're, we're going from being identified with the content of experience to having this loving relationship with experience to now the experience is the relative deity. And as we love the relative deity, we love the picture of Maharaji or the idea of Christ or the statue of the mother. It then finally opens up into the final stage of devotion, which is non-dual devotion. That there's nobody even being devoted. That God, Guru, and Self are one and are everything. That beyond concept, beyond trying, beyond effort, that we've we've so merged through devotion with the relative deity that the absolute deity, the oneness, it's all one, that truth is revealed. Now, one can hear this truth, it's all one, it's a great idea, and yet it sure looks like the Republicans are different from the Democrats and the Palestinians are different from the Israelis and the on and on and on. And we're not denying these very real physical plane differences, but we're tuning into this deeper level of consciousness itself, of pure beingness, of pure presence. And having been around people, beings living from that state where they are resting in that wholeness, there is such a sense of fearlessness, such a sense of everything is okay. When we were around Maharaji, uh, 
it was clear that all the forces of nature, all the crazy people coming and going, all the weirdness of the physical plane, that everything was going to be okay, that he was not, that he, that, that God, that this presence was uh, of total support moment to moment. It's hard to remember that when I'm here in America, when I'm in a traffic jam, when I'm dealing with all of the emails that I get from the Living Dying Project. A few days ago, I got 120 non-junk emails one day. Whoa, okay. And can I be with that kind of activity and not get lost? So to me, I can't do that except through devotion. Devotion to awareness, devotion to the to self, devotion to the guru, devotion to God. So right now, just ask yourself, what are you devoted to? What are you willing to receive? What are you willing to be touched by? I've, I've thrown out a lot of words about devotion. And not even a guided meditation here, but just asking yourself, is there something you're more devoted to than you're attached to your own suffering? And might it be that at times the answer is yes, and at times the answer is no, depending on how sticky the suffering is in that moment. And we can spend a lot of time working with the obstacles to devotion, having embodied mindfulness, supporting compassion for our conditioned emotional responses. But at the same time, we can be on the other track of deepening devotion, no matter what the circumstances, making God, guru, and self the practice that, that each, each moment is relationship at whatever level, invocation stage, heart stage, tantric stage, non-dual stage. Each moment is this living relationship with what you're devoted to. And it, it so much then softens, contextualizes all the difficulty, all the imbalance in life. Without it, to me, this time in which we're living, this early 21st century, is, is such a, a fraught time. There's so much uh, out-of-balanceness, so much suffering, so much divisiveness. And we can get angry about that, we can push back, or we can go into our devotion and then respond from that place and trust that which we're devoted to. Opening to grace in every moment catching hold of the first moment of perception rather than naming 
we rest in that feeling of the arising perception as the expression of that which we're devoted to. The beloved can only be everything. Okay, so let's now have a discussion about that. Anybody like to say something? And I have muted everybody at the beginning of the talk. There's enough people here that we needed to have some muting happening. So please remember to unmute yourself when you want to say something. Uh, also, it might help if you uh, hit the button, raise your hand. Emily. Hi. Hi there. My uh, sweet, sweet mother passed away this week. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, thank you. And when you're talking about, you know, grasping or attachment that causes suffering, how would you find balance between, you know, grasping and, you know, being human really after such a loss? You know, because I find myself wanting to, you know, listen to songs that remind me of her or closing my eyes and talking to her, you know, um, what of that is, is attachment that's causing the suffering or like, is there a balance? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question, Emily. And once again, I'm sorry for your loss. The loss of one's mother is profoundly difficult for most people. So there are no emotions, including grief, that are intrinsically good or bad. That emotions are healing messages. And the more difficult emotions, like deep grief or rage or deep fear are very difficult not to get caught in, if you will. But at the same time, one can consciously grieve, feeling that you want to talk to your mother, feeling deeply sad that your mother's no longer here for you to be with in the way that she was before, is, is totally appropriate and doesn't necessarily cause suffering. Now, I would guess that at times, because of how much you loved your mother, at times there is a pure grief where you're feeling it openly without, without grasping. You're just feeling the sadness. You're feeling the, the loss in a very direct, visceral way. And at other times, there may be some pushing it away. I don't want to feel this now. I don't have, I don't have the energy to do it right now. Right now, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to turn on a show or, or take a long walk. I don't want to feel this now, which is fine. And at other times, one gets lost in the feeling. So that uh, one can use grief as an opportunity to deepen devotion. That through the grief, you will probably be getting in touch with parts of your heart that up until now have been at least partly abandoned because of earlier losses in your life. 
to do conscious grief work, to at least occasionally feel in your body what this loss feels like to you. What are the sensations? What does it feel like in your chest? What does it feel like in your belly? What does it feel like in your throat? What does it feel like in your face? Without saying this is good, this is bad, I've got to fix this, oh, I want more of this, less of that. Just what does it feel like to be grieving? And that will bring you into contact with parts of your heart that you've successfully avoided. You've, you've compartmentalized them away because it's painful. But now this immediate loss has revealed all of this other suppressed loss. So it's not just your mother, it's all the loss and being with that. So uh, don't be hard on yourself. Don't say I'm not doing it right. There's no right way to grieve, but certainly at times this conscious grief work I'm talking about of being present with what you're feeling can be incredibly, incredibly useful. And when you're not able to do that, when you're getting lost in that, in, in grief, then have compassion for that part of yourself when you notice how, how lost you are. And the other thing that is often not talked about, uh, you did say you were having conversations with your mother, but very often after someone dies, we forget that they've never been so, <coughs> excuse me, they've never been so available to shower us with love and blessings, to, to be open to receiving love from your mother now, rather than I have to guide her on her way and support her. Yes, that's a great thing. But she doesn't have a body to take care of anymore. She doesn't have a house to keep clean anymore. She doesn't have all that stuff to do. All she needs to do is be up there, be on her journey and loving you and the other people that she loves. So what is your mother's first name? Her first name is Denise. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear. Uh, Denise. Denise. So mm -hmm. let us all send Denise blessings on her journey. And uh, let her, her passing remind us of our mortality and motivate us to deepen our devotion and our love for each other. Thank you so much. Thank you Thank for you so much. bringing that forward, Emily. Absolutely. Ilya? Delia, did you want to say something? Yeah, sorry about that. It's um, okay. Yeah, um, my question, I'm not sure if I'll be able to formulate it well, but it's like, about the guru and just between um, your words and what I'm reading uh, that John dropped into the chat from Ram Das about every person has a guru, um, but only some have a guru on this plane. Um, I wanted to ask about the guru and um, do you see it as a necessary um, component to self-realization because, um, yeah, 
Okay, I get the question. That's the question. Mm-hmm. That's the question. That's a big question. And a lot of these teachers, a lot of these traditional people from Asia say, you need a guru. Uh, and it's necessary for self-realization. So I guess the first question is, uh, are you wanting or expecting to get fully enlightened this lifetime, Delia? <laughs> and like in the Buddha's day, the Buddha said, one out of a thousand people enter the path, really. And out of a thousand that enter the path, only one gets to the end. That's one out of a million. So that uh, there are certainly people that find realization spontaneously without having a teacher. Uh, my feeling is that everybody does have a guru. Maybe you don't meet her or him on the physical plane. Maybe it's not a him or a her. Maybe it's a more non-anthropomorphized non-being, if you will. Uh, If you feel the lack of having a physical plane guru or even somebody that was on the physical plane, if you really feel that, then ask for it, demand it. Uh, uh, go on a, go on a, start picketing God and saying, "Where's the guru? Where's the guru?" Have a sign, walk around your, 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 your bedroom holding that sign up, and, and I mean, I'm kind of kidding, but really, very directly saying, "I want that." But I think for a lot of people, that. It's finding that place in yourself. And I admit that being with Maharaji in a a very direct way changed my life. Uh, At the same time, in India, they say that the function of the guru takes place in the first second after meeting the guru. And then you've got to bring that into manifestation in your life. So that possibly you've had that experience not by dragging your body to India and all the complications that that entails, but by taking a psychedelic or having a child or having some experience being in nature. Uh, So I guess my response would be that the guru is present in your life right now in some form or another and connect with that level. And if it's, if it's your karma or your fate that you're supposed to meet somebody on this form or another form, that that's going to happen. And feeling that lack, you can ask for it. Uh, my relationship with Maharaji has changed quite dramatically. Uh, a lot of people who were with Maharaji had much more relationship with him as a physical being. If you ever pay attention to Krishnadas, he's talking about he lived there with Maharaji for a bunch of years. He did all these things together. For me, it was much more an inner thing. It was a, a level of consciousness. It wasn't so much about his body or about a picture over on my altar that I can pay attention to. So I'm kind of 
weaseling around from answering your question too directly, I know. Uh, certainly, the guru can be the dharma, can be awareness itself. And if you have a certain personality that you don't need a person to be in love with, then it doesn't have to be a person, right? It can be the dharma. It can be the four noble truths, okay? So that's the best I've got. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the lovely, lovely Vietnamese Buddhist teacher said that in this day and age, the Buddha has become the Sangha, or maybe he said the Sangha has become the Buddha, that it's not that guy out there with the statue, it's us together, that this group of people, us here talking together, is the Buddha, right? That it's it's not one person. And when I was younger, there were a lot of really wonderful teachers. I went to India and I met so many seemingly enlightened beings, and a lot of them were coming here to the Bay Area. And in truth, and I hope this doesn't sound too presumptuous, but there's nobody that I know that I want to drive over a bridge in the Bay Area here now to go and see, right? That God is becoming democratized, that Maharaji split into a thousand pieces and, and Anandamai and all these great teachers, none of them really had a successor. And even in Tibetan Buddhism, where there is mostly the next reincarnation of the Karmapa or of Kalu Rinpoche, it seems that at least the younger version is not quite the older version yet. You know? So it's, it's finding the guru where she is. I'm always, I mean, for a long time, I was very reluctant to talk about Maharaji and Guru because I thought either people would think it's so gauche or it would make them jealous. But now I figure, well, let's just talk about it because it's such, it was such an important experience for me. Okay. Crystal Lee, thank you for that, Delia. I really give you all my blessings for finding what you're looking for there. I mean, not that I can make a change, but Thank I really you. No, I'm good. Thank you. I just, I, I have so much direct, direct experience of the divine that I'm like trying to understand, like, am I supposed to find a guru? Like, is there some reason why I, I, I need someone to be a go between or not a go between, but um, like, is not what I'm discovering um, through my own direct experience enough. I guess that was, that's probably the second part of my question, but I really like how you answered it. It really, um, helped orient me both towards how you think and like also just a helpful framework for me. And what I will say is that the answer to the second part of your question is yes, it is enough for the time being, and it maybe will continue to be enough. And if it's not enough, you'll know. So right now it's enough. Thank you, thank you. Thumbs up. Crystal Lee. <laughs> um, I've been thinking about sadhana. And so typically I've been a regular daily sadhana, bhakti yogi type. And over the course of the last several years, I've 
just been kind of more doing it for fun because I'm feeling more into like non-dualism. And I guess my question is, I like doing sadhana for fun, you know, but do you have any suggestions for what practice can look like as your relationship to what you are devoted to changes? Well, as we begin sadhana for the first, the beginning and a lot of the intermediate stages of practice, we're practicing not for fun, but out of some sense of desperation, right? We want to suffer less. So there's some sense of inadequacy, poverty. I'm practicing because I want to be happier. And then as practice deepens, we start becoming happier. And we're not we're not practicing because of need. And what what happened for me, I suffered really a lot when I was young. Ramdas said I had the longest dark night of the soul of anybody he'd ever met. And I got to a point where I wasn't suffering so much. I stopped practicing. I figured, okay, I've got what I'm looking for. I'm not suffering. I'm life is pretty chill here. And <laughs> after a while after a bunch of years of that five years of not practicing much uh i started feeling another yearning a yearning for something deeper something more than just happiness right a, a sense of can i really be in in deep presence all the time so that as long as you crystally or anybody is still getting caught in emotions at times, which uh, I think everybody in the room is, including me, that there still is reason to practice. There still is, uh, you say doing it for fun. Uh, I, it's a nice word, but I, I would say that to unpack that word a little bit, you're practicing not out of desperation anymore, not out of need and fear, but you're practicing because it feels good. But at times your life doesn't feel good. At times there are personal situations going on in your life, potentially, that you you contract around, that separate you from your, your connectedness, from the guru, from, from your true self. So as we get closer to the goal, the obstacles get at the same time more subtle and yet fiercer. That the, the guardians at the gate, as you approach the inner sanctum, become uh, more difficult to deal with. And in some ways, going back to Delia's question, that has a lot to do with why we need a guru. But up to a certain point, you're kind of, you, You've got your therapist, you've got your yoga teacher, you've got your meditation teacher, you're working the program. But we we often get to the point where the the still the fundamental attachment to feeling that you are a separate human being is very difficult to let go of without somebody to kick you in the butt once in a while. Right? So there, there's two levels of suffering. There's the Childhood conditioning, emotional suffering, go to the therapist kind of suffering. 
And there's a much more subtle kind of suffering that comes from believing the illusion that you're a separate being, right? And you can clean up a lot of that first kind by therapy and other things and still be, look how healthy I am and I'm a me and I'm a really a me. <laughs> and by really being a me, there's some delusion there that's, that's very difficult to dissolve. If you're talking about complete realization here. Who is it that's having fun? Who is it that's that's enjoying practice? Right? And after Maharaji left his body, and I spent five years not meditating because I wasn't unhappy anymore. Uh, he wasn't there to tell me what to do. At the same time, life was there telling me what to do. And I needed to listen. And it took me, being as stubborn as I am, it took me a while. Okay, Shannon, please. Hello. Um, I'll start this by saying that I'm kind of in a location where I'm challenged to have any in-person meeting with anyone. Um, and when I can, even online, I am working so much that it's difficult. So I've taken on kind of everything. Like I've just immersed myself in everything that I can listen to, watch, and I find myself, okay, we're going to try bhakti yoga. We're going to try kriya yoga. We're going to, you know, this meditation, this self-inquiry, is there a danger or a drawback to immersing myself. So like, am I, obviously there are certain things that I am more drawn to that I do a little bit more, but I feel like maybe I'm actually inhibiting myself by doing so much. Does that make sense? So much variety instead of you're like digging a lot of shallow wells instead of one deep one and you might never find the water. You mean? Yes. <laughs> yes, precisely. Okay. Yeah, well, that is a danger. But at the same time, until you know where to dig the one deep well, you keep digging shallow wells. So you say, oh, here's the place, right? I mean, un until you, until something grabs you and doesn't let you go, it, it sinks its teeth into your soul and says, this is your path. I mean, when when I met uh, Maharaji, when I met Ramdas and all that back in the 19... What was it? 1960s, believe it or not. Uh, I didn't have any choice in the matter. And I went, I went off to India. I, I met Swami Muktananda because Maharaji wasn't available yet. And I spent six months with Muktananda. It didn't take hold. I, I felt like I was a bad devotee because I couldn't feel that connection with him. And I tried, I, tr I tried to the extent that I almost died, literally. And it didn't work. I didn't have that connection. So I left and I met Maharaji and boom, in one instant there it was. So 
even though you're out in the middle of somewhere where there's not a lot of richness in terms of spiritual possibilities on the ground there, keep trying these things until something really, really connects with you or you connect with it. That uh, just the fact you're asking the question is indicating you have that deep yearning. It's it's a wonderful question to ask. And, and just asking itself shows a level of your heart that, that eventually that that yearning will be met. And the operative word obviously is eventually how long that takes. I have no idea, but I, I'm very happy that you're asking in such a direct way. Thank you so much. I appreciate the answer and it makes me feel a lot better. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's do a guided meditation together. yourself what are you most devoted to what do you trust the most and then please invoke that Begin to open to, to receive, to deepen trust in God, Guru, Self, in the Dharma. Allowing whatever arises in the body and in the mind to come and go without resistance, without grasping.
and you feel yearning for this connection to deepen, can you feel the yearning without conceptualizing it? Feeling that subtle or not so subtle suffering that's there when we're attached to our separateness, attached to our suffering. Can you invoke that which you trust deeply enough that this trust, this devotion is stronger than the fear of becoming somebody who's free from suffering. Becoming some unknown being that yet is so familiar. that even as the body and the mind continue to arise, there is the possibility each moment of feeling connected to that which you invoked, receiving the blessing, pouring yourself out at the feet of the beloved. losing yourself in adoration, trusting the Dharma so fully that the heart trusts and expands boundlessly. Being willing to cut off your head, what difference would that make?
feeling the sense of connectedness. So immediately that whatever arises is revealed to be simply another expression of the beloved. That each arising can be worshiped, can be loved beyond pure and impure, beyond control or repression. The body of microcosm of the whole universe. Each cell of your body, each atom in the universe, an expression of self. Everything an expression of the relative deity, opening to that to the point where we realize it is all of one nature, the absolute deity that is the one truth, the one source. The whole universe is densely permeated with this essential nature, permeated with God's name, but with devotion, we can remain in this non-dual state rather than getting caught in illusions of separateness. No one to create effort. Nothing is meditation or non-meditation. Resting.
devotion without effort, an expression of our true nature flowing freely. Great clarity. non-grasping. May all beings be devoted to their true nature and be free from suffering. For the remainder of our time here together, let's explore the possibility of remaining in this effortless devotional state and yet having a conversation about our lives. It's not one or the other, although it often unfolds that way. being in the world, but not of it. Dear Judy from Santa Fe, please unmute. I have recently had the experience um, of um, working with fear in terms of stepping into and not 
resisting what I thought it should be, which is what I was doing. Um, a, a fear for me is a form that actually I find, um, let's see, there's contraction and this crinkling at the edges, but um, it's a form I love. And I, there's, it's a, I'm in the unknown. I can't see where I'm going. I, I don't know. I'm afraid. And at the same time, uh, there's this crinkling at the edges, but I am, I am, uh, full. I, I, I love fear. If that's fear is love. Um, I don't know if that's describing it well. There's, and there's, you know, how fog, uh, reflects light. There's light in the distance and it's beautiful. I mean, the whole thing is beautiful. Fear is swirling around me and it's absolutely beautiful. Um, and I have absolute confidence and faith and, um, devotion, if you will, that I, um, can be with this and work with this and everything's fine and perfect. I, and, um, I'm so aware it's, it just gets more and more subtle. Um, there's some, uh, I'm working with resistance, which actually turn is fear. I think pretty much so at this point. Um, but there's this, uh, I get confused with this attachment. There's almost kind of a head attachment. Uh, and I'm not quite sure how to work with the attachment. You said head attachment. Yeah. I, I'm aware that the, the attachment is it's in my head. If I drop, I drop down and step into. Um, and so the, the challenge is to stay dropped down. It comes up, comes up and, and at a subtle, more subtle level. Uh, I'm aware that it's, it's, it's thoughts. Right. Um, but I get attached, you know, there's attachment there. That's where the attachment happens. Right. Um, so I, I think I get what you're asking if I can jump in. Yeah, please. And I, I love those images of the light on the fog and the crinkling around the edges. It's very, very lovely. Yeah. So it, it's kind of like I was talking before the meditation. I don't remember who I was talking to about that subtle level of suffering where we're identified with our separateness. Right. So you love the fear, uh, or at least love not grasping and not being caught in the fear. There's this spaciousness. There's this wonderful thing happening. But then what happens when there's enough space, when there's enough non-grasping, any place where you're still believing, where you're still <laughs> caught in this feeling of separateness, that's going to keep coming up. Right. So it's uh, my experience of, of deeper meditation when I'm at retreats is that the mind gets really, really still. It's like spacious. It's wonderful. I, I didn't really think of crinkling at the edges, but I know what you're talking about. It's this, it's this very pleasant, beyond pleasant. I mean, it's almost like mm -hmm. ecstatic at times. Mm -hmm. Openness. 
but to, to but to remain there really means letting go of who I think I am, that I'm the separate Dale guy who's separate from this Judy person, right? And staying in that open space that's so wonderful is the dying of separateness. So it's okay to, to dip your toe into it occasionally, right? But there's a you who's saying, well, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take charge again. Let her play. Let her do that thing for a while. But but there's the 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 separate Judy who needs to know that it can always come back. And it gets more and more subtle. It gets one can have strong practice. One can be pretty unneurotic in a lot of ways. But that final letting go, this radical surrender, permanently. Uh, I was talking to somebody just a few days ago where we were comparing our, our metaphors for that. For me, it's like I'm on the edge of a cliff and I'm just holding on with my fingernails. And I know that if I let go, there's I'm going to fall, but there's no bottom. I'm not going to crash into anything. It's going to be mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. But I'm still holding on with my fingernails to this this conditioned separateness this delusion is the cause of all suffering right and it's just gradually gradually deepening devotion to the point where i can finally trust letting go so that it reminds me of that ramdas metaphor where he says the spiritual path is like jumping out of an airplane and part way down realizing oh i don't have on a parachute and then further the way down, realizing it's okay because there's no ground. But you're in that place between no parachute and no ground. You're falling and you think, oh, maybe there's going to be rocks coming up in the air. So I should be worried about this and grab on a, a climb back, back into the plane, metaphorically, if you will. We all do that until we don't. And the fact that you're noticing this is wonderful. It's great. And to go beyond that is, is for most people, the practice of a lifetime, if not more. Yeah. Uh, and to begin to begin to be with that subtle fear and watch it arising, not just when you're meditating, but again and again throughout the day. That need to have a fixed stance from which to perceive reality rather than realizing that our true nature and the nature of reality itself is groundlessness there's there's no solid self and nothing is solid in 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 terms of consciousness in terms of physics even for that matter right so Diving into that sense of groundlessness and getting more and more used to it, gradually trusting that I can be, I can do this free fall and that it's all the beloved that I'm, I'm right. being, I'm being held as I'm falling is something that, so there's this fundamental tension between the needs of the ego and the, the spiritual reality. They're they're directly opposing each other. Right. 
Okay, so what I'm hearing is, I mean, um, so as a day, I can I can see. That's why I say head trip because as I go through my day, I can see my head coming. It's it's head thoughts um, that I need this place ego to stand. But what I'm right. hearing for myself and what you're saying um, is, and I get the I get the free fall. Uh, I need to embody that more. I need to to experience that. I need to experience that. Yeah, body. And, yeah. but even to say, I need to. Need, I, yeah, okay, yeah. So there's an I and there's my body and there's all this like dualistic right. stuff wrapped up in that sentence, which right, right. Is, is the cause of the whole problem in the first right. place. Right, 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 right. So, right. so. It, right. It's very, very deeply ingrained, Judy. It's it's like it's the society we live in. It's the education you got. It's, right, right. It, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it is, but it's it's a very it it's. But I just keep are, doing what I'm doing. Yes, <laughs> there we go. That's all I need to say. Just keep doing what you're perfect. Yeah. Okay. But thank you. So th there are two paths according to Ramana. One is devotion, which we talked about today. The other is self-inquiry. Right. Who's doing it? Who am I? Right. Right. But devotion leads to that. Who's devoted? Who's who's getting caught up in the world in certain ways? And what I'm saying is we, we can kind of do both of those. That right. as as devotion deepens, as the spaciousness gets more and more pleasurable and ongoing and then it it collapses because this delusion of separateness arises who is it who is it that's feeling the the crinkly uh right. stuff on the edge right yeah. who who is that who's i mean there is no edge <laughs> right right yeah and who's watching that is yeah. helpful yeah. yeah okay okay all right thank you very very much you're very, very welcome. And dear Alex Thomas. Hey, Dale. Hi. Um, just a couple of things. One's the the, the notion of a teacher. Um, I haven't read a biography of the Buddha, but he did go without a teacher. Like he met teachers. Yeah. But then like your experience, he had no resonance with them and he moved on. And eventually it was just, him and him and whatever's in front of him under the Bodhi tree. And uh, it kind of reminds me of the, the, the Jesus story where he's cast out into the desert, right? Which is there you are without your attachments. And what do you do now? Right. And then now the various uh, forms of uh, distraction show up or attempt to uh, prevent you from staying in this groundless state. Right. Yeah which is similar to like the death process when it begins to just unfold and how long can you just stay in that sense of groundlessness while you're noticing that your attachment is starting to do war with you. Yeah. Um, the other thing is um, the issue of devotion. Like uh, see, when I work with couples, well, one of my, uh, interest in life is how do spiritual concepts translate into practical reality? And especially in working with couples, what I notice is that 
when they come in, many are on the verge of losing their devotion to their marriage, or they have already collapsed. And they're looking to me to kind of hold this devotion that there might be still something good that can be experienced here. Right. Mm. And, you know, from my point of view, sometimes I'm thinking, you know, when, when they're yelling at each other and they're pointing out their resentments and et cetera, et cetera, like there's no spirit here, right? There's just, you know, uh, complete uh, resentment, sadness, anger, et cetera, et cetera. Like, where's the spirit in it? And then another voice tells me, you're, you're right in the middle of it. Uh, because these two people are now faced with impermanence as well as they're thrust into groundlessness and they're kind of flailing. And the only thing they know is to hold on to what they know, which is disappointment, anger, resentment, sadness. And then the way out the only way I have found the way out is to return to some sense of presence where you kind of just be present to yourself right now, kind of set yourself aside just for a moment so that the that, that the fog can kind of clear out a little bit so that you can kind of just be present in the moment right now and take another point of view about yourself. And that's kind of, if that doesn't happen, then there we may kind of stuck in this kind of very contracted place. Uh, and I found like the Bardo teachings from the Bond tradition, Tibetan Buddhism, have been very helpful to understand like where people get stuck and where they only see themselves now and nothing else. How that really is like, like a hell realm now. Um, so, but yeah, like uh, the return to devotion comes when you kind of just for, for a brief moment are able to just, just stop the mental chatter just be present and relativize yourself a little bit and kind of just be okay with you don't know right and we don't know what's going to happen next but we do know that the past can't happen again like if you're thinking that all you need to do is go back to the past it's just not going to work because you're 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 creating something new and it's challenging, uh, but it, the only way to move forward is to remain present and to return to the sense of devotion that, you know, this marriage, the, 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 the marriage is greater than the sum of its parts. Well said. Uh, certainly there is current research that shows that to heal PTSD or severe trauma, that it's first necessary to become embodied, to get grounded and centered, to come right in the present before we go into the healing of what got embedded in, in the present from the past. And I think that's pretty much exactly what you're saying here. The other thing about the Buddha, the Buddha was is a kind of a special case. He he decided, whatever, he that he decided I'm going to be the Buddha and be a world teacher be the avatar of the age. So he had to take all these extra incarnations to develop this profound compassion. There's something called the Jataka tales. Maybe you're familiar with that, where there are these stories of the Bodhisattva, as he was called, on his road to Buddhahood, where he had to take these lifetimes to deepen, deepen his compassion. There's one story where 
he was a wandering renunciate out in the out of the forest and he heard this sound and there was a a, a tiger who had fallen into a, a, a like a canyon or something had fallen down there and couldn't get out because she had been injured and she had two cubs had gone down with her so there were three of them and they were all going to starve to death so the bodhisattva threw his body into the abyss so that the three of them could eat him and have enough strength so that so the three of them could survive three of them and one of him so he figured yeah of course i mean math is works here and here here's my body so uh i settle for just enlightenment i don't need to be the world teacher <laughs> okay so ian thank you alex for the wise words hi how are you um good during today's talk um this this might seem like a, a simple question to me that uh kind of only occurred to me recently but um you you've spoken about how you can ask um god for things and um as simple as that is that really never occurred to me <laughs> um but um my my question is i i recently went to uh like a plant plant medicine ceremony and um i was kind of able to um ask questions and have uh I, I believe a dialogue you know so it was uh very helpful for me but in my regular everyday practice um i'm trying to develop uh better listening skills like you said that uh it took you a long time to to hear and um i'm i'm and also this sounds so simple but like i spent much of my life agnostic and it, like when I was talking about this with a friend. It's like he he prays every day, you know, what whatever that means to him, and he has that direct um, dialogue with the divine. And for me, I find him much more in my head. And so I'm I'm tr just trying to see if you maybe have a practice or uh, some techniques other than keep trying and meditation to um, uh, more deeply uh, pray and listen. Great. So I've always felt that if praying is about me. It's not about communicating. That, that if, if God is God or Maharaji is Maharaji, he knows exactly what I need. He knows it better than I know it, right? So why, why am I telling him, hey, I want a little more of this and a little less of that? I mean, in a way, that's the, the ultimate arrogance. Uh, but me expressing that is reifying something. It's, it's deepening something in me. And at the same time, my practice is more just simple mantra, where by repeating this mantra that Maharaji gave me, how many millions of times, uh, that I'm learning to trust when he says, I'm always in communion with you rather than I've got to figure it out, right? He even said, it is better to trust in God than to try to figure things out. So that, that uh, me asking for something, I think is a very beginning stage. It's like admitting, it's kind of like in the 12 steps. The first step is you got to admit that you're helpless and you've got to, 
receive help. Okay, so you say, God, I, I really need help here. I, I need more of this and less of that. But as you start going through these stages, and I'm no expert in the 12 steps, I'm really not. But my my understanding is that as you go through those stages, it's more about trusting and healing. But in the beginning, you've got to make that, you've, you've got to surrender. You've got to admit that you need something. So once again, and I've said this so many times, but it, it I find it so remarkably helpful that if you're saying a mantra, it can be said from different stages of devotion that we talk through today, but not specifically in this context. So that mantra from the invocation stage, from the beginning stage, is please show up. You're saying, Ram, 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 I, I, I felt you before, or Ram Das said he felt them, or, you know, I've read books about that, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm lost in separateness temporarily or for a long time or whatever. And as, as you just trust, just going beyond the mind, the mind is still going to be showing up. The mind's going to be complaining. It likes to have a much bigger field to play in than one or a few repeated words, just like watching your breath. I mean, it's the same kind of thing without anyway. Uh, the heart begins to open and there's this back and forth. There's this connection that I'm, there's this, this uh, wonderful quote, Ram is talking to Hanuman and Ram asks Hanuman, who are you? And Ram's and Hanuman says, when I don't know who I am, I love you. When I know who I am, I am you. <laughs> okay. Right. So now we're at the stage of Hanuman is loving Ram. There's, there's, Ram, there's Hanuman, they're two separate things. There's you, the devotee, and the beloved. There's two separate things, and there's this love affair going on between them. But as that deepens and the heart becomes more and more and more boundless, or at least you realize the boundless nature more and more and more. It's not becoming more boundless. You're realizing more the boundless nature. And the eye fixation is not a big deal anymore. It's just one little point in the vast sky of mind. Then as the identification with separateness, that delusion that we were talking with Judy about just a few minutes ago, as that begins to not be right in the forefront so much, this tantric expression of, of reality is revealed that it's all sacred. It's all awakened energy. It's all the mother. Even the part of you in the beginning that, that was saying, hey, God, I'm complaining. I need some help here. Even the yearning, even the complication is none other than, than sacredness, a, a, a purely awakened energy, pure awareness. And then finally, so, so that God, Guru, and Self are one, I, me who sang the mantra, the mantra. So like each time I say Ram, I mean, here's the mind-blowing thing. Each time you say Ram, there's Ram. It's not, it's not a it's not a pointer, it's it. Right? That each time you say the, the name, each time the 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 syllable arises, it's the full expression. Like in St. John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, or something like that, right? And then finally it it all expands into non-duality. So that uh one can use mantra as a path to non-duality, as a path of deepening devotion. And then as you, you go 
into these final stages, you're asking who's saying the mantra? Who's who's getting distracted when I'm saying the mantra? And it it all feeds into itself in a very, very lovely way. So Maharaj said very clearly, in this, in this day and age in which we're living, the best practice for a lot of people is just saying God's name. And there's this wonderful Saint Namdev uh, who said, the whole universe is densely permeated with God's name. Each, each molecule, each atom, each sound, each arising, is densely permeated with God's name. It's all God's name because God's name is God. Who's saying the mantra? The mantra and the deity of the mantra are all the same. Identical. Thank you very much. It's keep coming back. (laughs) It's what I need to do. Thank you. So it seems like I give these really complicated answers and people summarize it in one sentence. Maybe I should learn to do that myself in the beginning. Just keep doing it. Just keep coming back. Okay. So we still have 10 minutes here, nine minutes. Anybody else want to say anything? The last two meetings were all about war. Now it's about devotion. A nice evolution here, hopefully. We could end early if nobody has anything to say. Okay, Hasso, saved by the Hasso bell. What's happening? (laughs) It's just so beautiful to be here with you and with all. It's um, such an honor. You know, I wanted to say, when I do my own practice every day, which is a prayer mantra practice, I've been doing this for so long, and um, it has really morphed in a beautiful way, and, and I had no idea how it would morph and what's really happening. But what I observed is that... If I would actually summarize the evolution of that practice, it would be there's nobody anymore practicing. It's just practicing. You know, it's it's actually a, a gradual degradation of the ego structure that is believing it's doing anything. And that's and that's really beautiful. And I I when I reflect about that, I really feel that that's enough, you know, it's, I'm not expecting more even. So I just wanted to share that. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Hasso. Mm-hmm. So before we meet again, there's going to be something in the meantime, which is called Thanksgiving. And Gratitude is a great support to devotion. Uh, 
there are these common notions of a gratitude journal where you think of three things you're grateful for and you write it down in a book, which is lovely, but beginning to explore gratitude as an attitude. Maybe that's the name of a talk, gratitude as an attitude, that you're you're grateful for each moment. You're you're grateful for the crinkly edges. You're grateful for the part of you that's trying to figure out the crinkly edges, right? You're grateful for the complication in your life. You're grateful for your enemies, whatever that means. You're grateful for your finite limitations. And this wonderful saint, maybe let's not call him a saint because he's still alive, but this wonderful uh, Christian Brother David Stendelross, his his whole practice is gratitude. He says if there's if you just do one thing, gratitude is enough. And he says that uh, let me not get it backwards here. You're not happy because you're grateful. You're no, you. It's, I guess it's the other way around. Don't don't think you. You should be, well, I'm really messing this one up. I can't remember which way it goes. People think they're happy because they're grateful, but no, they're grateful. It's the other way around. You got it. I've messed that one up completely. You're happy because you're grateful, not you're grateful because you're happy, right? That's the way it works. <laughs> you're happy because you're grateful not waiting to be happy. You're just grateful. Then the happiness arises. Gratefulness is a practice. Gratefulness is an attitude. And I love Thanksgiving. You know, I, I don't particularly like turkey, but I love Thanksgiving. Uh, I used to have a girlfriend who was a Native American shaman. She didn't like Thanksgiving very much for some reason, for obvious reasons, obviously. But when we when we go beyond the founding of the country and what happened to the indigenous peoples here, <laughs> Deepening gratitude in your life is a wonderful, wonderful practice. So I'm grateful for all of you. I'm grateful for this opportunity to be together, to share these teachings, uh, to feel loved and supported by you. I hope you're finding some value in what we're doing here together, some support, some sense of community. I think community is incredibly, incredibly important right now. Uh, one of the people said that they were off somewhere, maybe it was Shannon, maybe I forget who didn't really have much community. So we have Zoom community and uh, happy Thanksgiving, deep in devotion, much love to everybody. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.